Section 32 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Book Fifth, The Revolver, Chapter One. The Conversations at the Jean Tavern. Sieur Clubin was a man who waits his opportunity. He was short and yellow, with the strength of a bull. The sea had not succeeded in tanning his skin. His flesh resembled wax. He was the color of a candle, and he had the candle's discreet light in his eyes. His memory was peculiarly retentive. For him to see a man once was to have him registered as if in a notebook. His eye took an impression of a face and kept it. In vain did the visage grow old. Sieur Clubin knew it again. Impossible to throw this tenacious memory off the track. Sieur Clubin was curt, sober, cold, never a gesture. His air of candor won at first sight. Many people considered him artless. He had in the corner of his eye a wrinkle astonishingly expressive of simplicity. There was no better sailor than he, as we have said. There was no one like him for hauling in sheets or for keeping the sails well trimmed. No reputation for religion and integrity stood higher than his. Anyone who suspected him would himself have been regarded with suspicion. He was a friend of M. Reboucher, money-changer in St. Malo, Rue St. Vincent, beside the armorers, and M. Reboucher was wont to say, I would give Clubin my shop to keep. Sieur Clubin was a widower. His wife, like himself, had been strictly honest. She had died with the reputation of unsullied virtue. If the bailli had paid court to her, she would have gone and told the king. And if the deity had been in love with her, she would have told the curé. This couple, Sieur and Dame Clubin, had realized in Tortval the ideal of the English term respectable. Dame Clubin was the swan. Sieur Clubin was the ermine. A stain would have been fatal to him. He could not have found a pin without searching for the owner. He would have sent the town crier round with a box of matches. One day he entered a wine-shop in St. Servin and said to the proprietor, I breakfast here three years ago. You made a mistake in the bill, and he returned him sixty-five centimes. His was a great probity, accompanied by a certain contraction of the lips. He seemed to be on the watch. For whom? Probably for rascals. Every Tuesday he took the Durand from Guernsey to St. Malo. He reached St. Malo on Tuesday evening, remained two days to load, and set out for Guernsey again on Friday morning. There was a little tavern in St. Malo at that time, near the port, which was called the Jean Tavern. The construction of the present quays has demolished this inn. At that epoch the sea came up to the St. Vincent and Dinan Gate. St. Malo and St. Servan were put in communication at low tide by carrioles and maringot. Note, a small carriage furnished with rails on the sides and ends, the seats being movable. Rolling and circulating among the vessels lying high and dry, avoiding the buoys 
the anchors and cordage and sometimes running the risk of breaking their leather hoods on a lowered yard or the end of a jib-boom between tides the coachmen lashed their horses across this sand where six hours later the wind lashed the waves on this same strand in former days roamed the four-and-twenty watchdogs of st malo who ate a naval officer in seventeen seventy this excessive zeal led to their suppression Today nocturnal barking is no longer heard between the little talard and the grand talard sieur clubin put up at the jean tavern the french office of the durand was located at that place the custom-house men and coast guards came to take their meals and to drink at the jean tavern they had their separate table the custom-house officers at binique met the officers of st malo there for the good of the service the skippers of vessels also came there but ate at another table sieur clubin sat sometimes at the one sometimes at the other preferring the table of the custom-house officials however to that of the skippers he was welcome at both these tables were well served there were supplies of foreign beverages for mariners far from home a dandified sailor from bilboa would have found an eleda there stout was drunk as at greenwich and brown goose as at antwerp captains on long voyages and ship's chandlers sometimes were seen at the skipper's table there they exchanged news how are sugars that kind goes only in small lots but raw sugars sell three thousand sacks of bombay and five hundred hogsheads of sagua you will see that the duty will result in overturning Villal and indigo only seven guatemala surons have been handled the nanin julia has come into the roads a pretty three-master from britannia the two cities of la plata are quarreling again when montevideo grows fat buenos aires grows lean they have had to reship the cargo of the regina cordi condemned at calao cocoa is rising sacks from caracas are quoted at two hundred and thirty-four and trinidad sacks at seventy-three it appears that at the review on the champ de mar people shouted down with the ministers salted green hides from saladeros are selling ox hides at sixty francs cow hides at forty-eight have they passed the balkans what is Devich doing at san francisco the supply of aniseed is short plagnol olive oil is quiet gruyere cheese in tins thirty-two francs the quintal well is leo the twelfth dead etc etc these things were shouted out and noisily commented upon at the table of the custom-house officers and coast guard they talked less loudly matters connected with the coast police and revenue require less publicity and less distinctness in conversation the skipper's table was presided over by an old foreign captain m guetre gabriel m guetre gabriel was not a man he was a barometer his familiarity with the sea 
had given him a surprising infallibility of prognostication. He decreed the weather for the following day. He osculated the wind, he felt the pulse of the tide. He said to the cloud, "'Show me your tongue,' that is to say, the lightning. He was the doctor of the waves, the breeze, the squall. The ocean was his patient. He had made the tour of the world as one takes a clinical course, examining every climate in both good and bad health. He knew the pathology of the seasons to the very last details. He was heard to announce facts like the following. The barometer once went down in 1796 to three lines below tempest. He was a sailor from love of the profession. He hated England as much as he loved the sea. He had studied the English navy carefully in order to get at its weak points. He explained in what respect the sovereign of 1637 differed from the Royal William of 1670 and from the Victory of 1755. He compared their upper works. He regretted the towers on deck and the funnel-shaped tops of the Great Harry of 1514, probably from the point of view of the French cannonball, which lodged so well in these surfaces. For him, nations existed only in their marine institutions, and odd synonyms were peculiar to him. He liked to designate England by Trinity House, Scotland by Northern Commissioners, and Ireland by Ballast Board. He abounded in information. He was an alphabet, an almanac, low-water mark and tariff all in one. He knew by heart the tolls of the lighthouses, especially of the English, a penny a ton for passing by this one, and a farthing for passing by that one. He would say to you, The lighthouse on Small's Rock, which used to consume only two hundred gallons of oil, now burns fifteen hundred gallons. One day on board ship, in the course of a serious illness, he was thought to be dead. The crew surrounded his hammock. He interrupted the hiccups of his death agony to say to the master carpenter, It would be a good idea to make a mortise in the masthead caps on each side and put in a cast-iron sheave to reeve the top ropes through. This habit of command gave him an expression of authority. It was rare that the subject of conversation, though, was the same at the table of the skippers as that of the custom-house officials. This case presented itself, however, in the early days of that month of February, to which we have now brought the story we are relating. The three master Tamaulipas, Captain Zuela, coming from Chile and about to return thither, attracted the attention of both messes. At the skipper's table they talked of her cargo, at the customs house table of the set of her sails. Captain Zuela of Copiapo was a Chilean and a bit of a Colombian. He had fought independently in the war for independence, holding now with Bolivar and again with Morillo, according as he saw his advantage. He had become rich by tint of being of service to everyone. There was no man more Bourbonist, more Bonapartist, more absolutist, more liberal, more atheist, and more Catholic. He belonged to that great party which may be called the 
lucrative party. He made his appearance in France from time to time on business, and, judging from what was said, he willingly gave passage on his vessel to people taking flight, bankrupts or political outlaws, it mattered little to whom, so long as they paid. His process of embarkation was simple. The fugitive waited on a desert point of the shore, and at the moment of setting sail, Zuela dispatched a boat to fetch him. He had, in this way, on his preceding voyage, aided in the escape of a contumacious person connected with the Burton trial, and this time he intended, it was said, to carry off some men who had been compromised in the Bidasoa affair. The police, having been warned, had an eye upon him. This was a period of flights. The restoration was a reaction. Now, revolutions bring about emigrations, and restorations produce banishments. During the first seven or eight years after the return of the Bourbons, panic reigned everywhere in finance, in industry, in commerce, which felt the earth trembling, and in which failures abounded. There was a desperate scramble in politics. La Valette had taken flight. La Febre des had taken flight. Delon had taken flight. The courts of exception were more crowded than Trestaillon. People shunned the bridge of Saumur, the Esplanade de la Réole, the wall of the Observatory of Paris, the Tower of Tourrières d'Avignon, landmarks in history which reaction has marked, and where one still distinguishes at the present day that bloody hand. In London, the Thistlewood trial branching into France, in Paris, the Trogoff trial, with branches in Belgium, Switzerland, and Italy had multiplied the causes for uneasiness and flight, and augmented that mysterious underground route which created so many gaps even in the highest ranks of the social system of the day. To place oneself in safety, that was men's sole care. To be compromised was to be lost. The spirit of the military courts had survived their institution, Condemnations were matters of favor. People fled to Texas, to the Rocky Mountains, to Peru, to Mexico. The men of the Loire, traitors then, patriots today, had founded the Chant d'Asile. A song of Belanger says, Savages, we are Frenchmen. Take pity on our glory. To expatriate oneself was the only resource. But nothing is less simple than flight. That monosyllable contains abysses. Everything is an obstacle to the man who is fleeing. Stealing away implies disguising oneself. Important and even illustrious characters were reduced to the expedience of malefactors. And even then they succeeded badly. They were not practical. Their habits of freedom of action rendered their slipping through the meshes of authority difficult. A pickpocket who had forfeited his ticket of probation was more correct, in the eyes of the police, than a general. Can one imagine innocence constrained to paint its face, virtue assuming a false voice, glory hiding under a mask? Such and such a passer-by with a suspicious air was a renown in quest of a false passport. The equivocal course of a man making his escape 
did not prove that he was not a hero. Fugitive and characteristic traits of the time, which so-called regular history neglects, and which the true painters of the century should bring out clearly. Behind these flights of honest people had slipped in the flights of thieves, less watched and less suspected. A scamp, forced to disappear, profited by the confusion, formed one of a number of exiles, and often, as we have said, thanks to more art, seemed in that twilight more of an honest man than the honest man. Nothing is more awkward than probity in the clutches of justice. It understands nothing of the matter, and is sure to commit itself. A counterfeiter could escape more easily than a conventionary. Strange to say, one could almost affirm, particularly in the case of dishonest people, that flight led to everything. The amount of civilization which a rascal brought from Paris or from London served him in lieu of capital in primitive or barbarous countries, was a recommendation for him, and installed him as an initiator. There was nothing impossible in the adventure of escaping from the criminal code here and arriving at the priesthood abroad. There was something fantastic in the disappearance, and more than one flight had results like a dream. A flight of this description led to the unknown and the chimerical, a bankrupt who absconded from Europe reappeared twenty years later as Grand Vizier to the Mogul, or King of Tasmania. Assisting fugitives became an industry, and in view of the frequency of the fact, an immensely profitable industry. This speculation was eked out by certain kinds of commerce. Any one who wished to make his escape to England applied to the smugglers. He who wished to flee to America betook himself to sea captains like Zuela. End of section 32, book 5th, The Revolver, chapter 1, The Conversation at the Jean Tavern.